Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Romans Empire podcast. Today, I'm joined by Andres, and we're going to discuss some Chelsea football. Andres, how you doing? Overall, I'm doing all right. The weather's got me a little under the weather, so ironic, right? But uh, if I sound a little stuffy, I apologize ahead of time. And once again, Sam cannot be on the podcast today. Unfortunately, law school is more important than Chelsea Football Club. Who would have thought? <laughs> um, this guy. Yeah, this guy, right? Um, but anyways, like I said before, this is the Romans Empire podcast where all we do is talk Chelsea and talk shit about everyone else. So um, I guess we'll just dive right into it. So uh, Chelsea won, Bade Borisov zero. Um, our lineup for the game was pretty strong, surprisingly. So we had Kepa in goal, uh, Zapakosa and Emerson, um, Zappa on the right, Emerson on the left of our back four, Cahill and Christensen right in between them. And our midfield three, Jorginho, actually starting this match um, with Ross Barkley and Ruben Loftus-Cheek in the midfield. Finally, we got to see uh, how they worked together. And then uh, Pedro, Hazard, and Giroud up top. So um, I guess we'll start out with uh, Olivier Giroud because he seemed to be the only real story of this match, right? He finally got his goal. (laughs) Yeah, he finally got to get that monkey off his back kind of thing. Great cross from Emerson. Yeah. Sound like I feel like this connection's happened before, like to get his very first Chelsea goal. So nice mm-hmm. to see him score again. And and like Sari said, like he does a lot for us that doesn't involve him being the direct scorer. But as a forward, I'm sure like he was just dying to get that first goal in the net. One thing aside, though, I mean, that was a really well taken finish. Very impressive. I mean, he got a, Emerson's ball was perfect. Literally hit it with perfection. But for Ali Giroud to get his forehead on it just enough to where he could hit it straight into the ground right underneath the goalkeeper was phenomenal. But again, I mean, if that if he if he tries that in a Premier League match, nine times out of ten that gets saved, right? I felt like their goalkeeper just made a complete mess of that. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like the most beautiful goal, but I mean, there's Chicharito scored against Chelsea one time off his face. So the fact that it went in, it went in, it builds confidence. A goal is a goal. I'm sure Giroud will take it. So, God, I know all of our uh, some of our American listeners won't want to hear this, but we could really use some goals right now. Chicharito is the essence of that. But um, <laughs> anyways, uh, we, we got Ruben Loftus-Cheek and Ross Barkley. So they finally started together. Um, but unfortunately, they were a non-factor for the most part. I mean, I know right here on the script I have, could they play together? We all know the answer is, yeah, I mean, I'm sure they can. Um, but but what do you attest to, you know, this performance to? Was it just a lack of of uh, a lack of playing together, like a, a lack of familiarity? Or was it more of it was one of those difficult European nights? The atmosphere uh, in it, at Bate Stadium was uh, was pretty electric, too. So, I mean, you know, how some of these matches could actually get kind of tricky. So, I mean, Andres, I'm curious to see how you how you chalked it off as. Um, I'm thinking it's more about what they've had to do so far in the Chelsea teams. When Loftus-Cheek or Barkley have played, they've both been tasked to be the more offensive of the midfield three. And I just think that in this game, they were kind of maybe confused as to when they were supposed to be the attacking and when the other one was supposed to be the defensive one. I think this kind of setup could work very well if maybe... Kovacic would have been in the Jorginho role, somebody that can do a lot more of that defensive work to kind of uh, balance the fact that Loftus-Cheek and Barkley probably aren't still like all the way there in the defensive phase. But that's that's basically how I took it. I think they could, they could work together. I just think it, it'll take a little bit more practice on, okay, if you're the one going up, I need to be in this position and vice versa. So I, I think they're just not tactically aware yet of how to work in that midfield three when the other guys also very offensively minded. It's interesting that you mentioned that because actually my main criticism of Ross Barkley and Ruben Loftus-Cheek when we have seen them play in the midfield in general has been that whole idea of pressure cover balance. I mean, that's something that we learned when we were, what, nine or ten years old, right, when we were starting to understand positional play, right? But knowing when one should push up and when the other one should drop off and vice versa, and also knowing when both should drop off or both should even push up. Um, it, it all comes down to just, I mean, for me, it's mostly familiarity. Like you said, you know, these guys need to play together in order to be familiar with one another. Their games completely complement each other. 
I think when we're chasing games, this is actually probably our best midfield three that we could even go with because you could trust Jorginho to pick out the right pass and not really give the ball away. But you also have uh, uh, the ability to run at defenses and get in and, and make those runs beyond our strikers even um, with Ruben Loftus-Cheek and Ross Barkley. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this Bate match, so we're going to move on um, just to a couple other key points before we get into the Everton game because there's a lot to talk about, and I have to shit on uh, on the refereeing in that match. So um, big minutes for key players in this game. Um, we're going to get back to this when we talk about the Everton match, but Ross Barkley got to run out Jorginho, Azard, Pedro. Um, clearly, we saw that Jorginho just looked absolutely exhausted against Everton. And uh, Eden Hazard um, looked a little tired as well. You know, kind of confused why Hazard even went on this trip. I mean, was it – I got the sense that Maurizio Sarri just wanted to give him a little run out because Hazard's that type of player where you just got to keep playing him so he can maintain that momentum. Um, but just very, very confusing because against a team like Bate, especially the way we performed last match, did we really need him for this game? Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't have uh, at all. But like you said, Sari mentioned pregame that, you know, he was going to give Hazard some minutes because he is the type of player. He needed to get more match fit because he had missed a couple games. Uh, but, yeah, like it stinks because, yes, Hazard needs – he is that kind of player that once he gets on a streak, you have to keep playing him. Otherwise, he'll cool off. But these games, I just don't think it's so necessary to be playing our – big names like our big starters this was a far trip like you said the guys looked sluggish on Sunday mm-hmm. and Jorginho playing I think that was just unfortunate that Sesk was sick I think that was the yeah. plan all along and it's just like I said unfortunate that Jorginho was the only other option at that point but uh, yeah Hazard played a lot more than he should have again it sucks that the first team couldn't just get a goal earlier against Bate like we we need to do better. We need to do better. Like this, the starting eleven in this game was was way too good to take so long to score. And whether it was their tactics, whether it was the pitch, whether it was the fog, whatever the cause was, like Chelsea's quality is too good to have taken that long. So it's a little bit on the players themselves because if Hazard scores early, he'll get a sub. So I don't think they should have traveled. I don't think they should have played, but that's the the demise of the Europa League. That's why nobody likes this competition, and it complicates everything else around it because of the travel and the fact that it's always going to be on Thursday night. I love the Europa League. I think think any trophy is a trophy that's worth winning, if you ask me. Um, And just ask Branislav Ivanovic also. He loves the Europa League. I mean, are we going to see more youth next match? I mean, we're, we are top of the group. We have 12 points. There are two matches left to play. One of them is against PAOK at home. You would guess, even if we feel, even if we fielded uh, a, a weaker side, and I'm using my air quotes because our weaker side should still be able to uh, to easily take care of PA, a team like PAOK at home. And then we got VD away. Um, there, there, we, there has to be three points within these two matches, at least. Yeah, um, okay. And we only it, need one to, exactly. to win the group. So yeah. We only need one point. So as long as we could get one point out of these next two matches. But my fear is that Maurizio Sarri is going to say, you know what? I'm going to put out a, a decently strong team similar to the one that we saw against uh, against Bate. And he'll put out a team with maybe four or five first-team players just to guarantee that we lock it down that first spot. And then that, uh, that, that last game is going to be basically a wash. I mean, we'll see guys like Callum hudson Adoy. hopefully Ethan Ampadu is healthy again by then, um, and, and and maybe some other youth players that could possibly come in for that match. Who knows? Maybe we might even get a Lucas Piazon sign, uh, sighting. <laughs> is he even in the Europa League squad? Uh, I'm not sure, but I, I did read an article this week that he's looking for a move, like a permanent move out in January, which, again, surprise, surprise. I, I mean, I up until recently, I had totally forgotten we still owned the guy, so... It sucks that the next Kaka didn't turn into anyone. But uh, as to what you were saying, I really hope that the PAOK, PAOK, however you say it, that game is the one where he trusts the to put in a weaker side just because it is at home. It's the perfect kind of environment for the youth or the people that haven't had enough minutes to kind of get a run out in a comfortable environment where they're going to get support the whole time. Yeah. And then if we f- somehow butcher that, which I really doubt we would, 
you've got Vidi to go get a tie at least. So I really hope that Pauk is the game where, you know, we see some Ampadu and Hudson Adoy Hudson uh, time on the pitch. So that's yeah. that's my opinion. We need to see Ethan Ampadu get a run out before he gets his lone ass in Villa or Derby. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, w- I want to move on. I want to talk about the Everton match. Um, but first, I'm going to go through the starting lineup. So we got Kepa in goal, uh, usual back four of Dave, Alonso, David Luiz, and Rudy. Um, Jorginho at the holding midfield role. Uh, Kovacic and Kante in front of him. William Hazard and Murata as our front three. So I want to start by talking about Jorginho's, uh, Jorginho's struggles. I mean, we're we're starting to see... I don't want to say that it's officially a dip in form because it is only two matches, but he did struggle a bit against Vidi. Um, and clearly he struggled against Everton. He has been playing big minutes. He is basically, uh, he is Sarri's guy. Um, and, and we knew that coming in that he was going to play big minutes right off the bat. But I just want to, I just want to name out a stat before I get, before I give it, hand it over to you, Andres. So uh, Nazar Kinsella tweeted uh, Jorginho's passes into Premier League. Um, and I only took note of the matches that we actually won. So, I mean, against Huddersfield, he had 66 passes completed. Arsenal, 99. Newcastle, 173. Bournemouth, 79. Cardiff, 92. Uh, Southampton, 91. Burnley, 102. Palace, 107. And Everton, 50. Out of only 60 attempted passes as well. So, um, what did what did Everton do to stifle him? Or was it just more a matter of... You know, he he just needs a break. I mean, he did play on Thursday, so you could give him the benefit of the doubt for that. Uh, yeah, I think it might be a little bit of both. I think he played way more than he should have on Thursday. Again, another guy that probably didn't need to travel with the team. Uh, but one thing that Sil- Marco Silva and Mourinho both said is that the key to beating us is, is neglecting and not neglecting, uh, focusing on Jorginho. And I mean, the stat you just placed kind of shows it. You know, if he's not the the guy making the team tick, it seems like it's a totally different side. Uh, the other thing is that Everton ran something similar to what Darby did. So they man-marked the Regista, this time Jorginho. But then they also ran what what's called like a middle block. So under Conte, we were playing a low block, meaning we had two lines of defense in the bot, like in our own third of the field. Everton, what they did was they had it all concentrated to the middle of the pitch. So we had, <clears throat> excuse me, the middle, their midfield and defense were maybe 15 yards away from each other max, mm-hmm. having a high line. So it just congested the whole midfield. Plus, you take out the one guy who is good at the one two touch passes, and it just looked like a shit show, honestly. Like there's no real control, it was very chaotic in that midfield area. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it, that that mid-block. We had Gilfie Sigurdsson dropping back and almost sitting in between Idrissa Gay and uh, and Andre Gomez, just trying to cut off Jorginho. And I also noticed that Richarlison was pressing our back line um, when Rudiger and David Luiz had the ball because that's the supply line right there. It's our center backs and that Jorginho combination. That little triangle right there is what keeps it, keeps the team going. Jorginho gets the ball. There's no options forward. What does he do? He plays it back. Uh, David Luiz and Rudiger, what are their only two jobs in possession when they're not spraying it wide? They're giving the ball to Jorginho. Um, uh, I, I actually thought that Everton deserves a lot of credit for the way they played. I thought they were great on the day. Um, they did absolutely everything that they needed to to stifle us, um, and, and, and it worked. I mean... Do you give? Did you agree with the substitutions? By the way, I mean, I know it's not necessarily in the script, but um, you know, you know, bringing on Cesc Fabregas, and you were you were texting in a group chat right when that happened, also, and I, I just thought it was a weird one. I thought Ross Barkley should have been that obvious choice. I thought maybe Kovacic would have been would have been better off dropping deeper, or maybe even Angolo Conte, so he could play that natural role. But um, yeah, I was I was a little confused. Not gonna lie. Um, yeah, Jorginho wasn't uh doing much but again that's because they centered around him then when Fabrias came on yeah he was running a lot more but even but he was again a little unorganized kind of like his previous uh game I'm trying to think who it was against where he was just kind of going gunning forward I think it was against Darby so like the midfield three again was unorganized where it looked as if 
Kovacic and Conte were then playing defensively and Sesk was in front of them. So again, it was just maybe he was trying to do too much. I, I just didn't understand that sub, to be completely honest. And that one kind of uh, confused me for once. I was just not feeling that. I mean, the, I, I, I could see the logic with uh, maybe playing Sesk there is because, you know, he could receive the ball. And, and his first option isn't to look for that short pass. It's actually for him to look over the top and just play that clipping ball into a runner be, in in those spaces between the between the midfield and the defense. But, you know, they they successfully man-marked Jorginho out of the match. And then when Sesk came in, they essentially did the same thing. And nothing really changed. Um, I remember at the end of the match specifically, every time Sesk would get the ball – He'd have at least one or two people on him, and then he'd have to turn and play it backwards. And then you get that whole cycle of the crowd moaning and groaning because we're playing the ball backwards. Um, I would like to see Kovacic get a run out playing that number six, especially because it'll open up a space for Ruben Loftus-Cheek to get into the side more frequently. Um, but, I mean, obviously we know Jorginho is Sarri's guy, and that's why he has been playing big minutes. But it's for me, it's more refreshing to see that Maurizio Sarri is willing to to identify, wait, Jorginho's getting man-marked out of the game. He does look pretty tired. Let me bring it on Let me bring on his replacement. Um, so it does show that he has that, – that he was trying to make a change, but it just was not the right change. And, and like, I hate to say it, but I, I knew it was going to happen the second I saw Cesc Fabregas uh, – getting ready to come into the match. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to talk about Kevin Friend. Uh, for those of you that don't know, that's a shit referee um, that that ref this match. I mean, we got to get right to it. Let, let's talk about that Bernard head. But, I mean, we know Rudiger made a meal of that, right? Um, Definitely. But does he really deserve a fucking yellow card? I mean, wh- what does a yellow card in that situation accomplish? It's kind of like that, that that double technical foul rule in the NBA that's just complete nonsense. Like it, it doesn't do anything for anybody. No, that that was okay. So they had the, they showed the take like three times at least in the American broadcast with Kevin Friend running away from the play, and you see Bernard get up, headbutt Rudiger, and then of course Rudiger makes like you said he just makes the most of it, and then by the time that Kevin Friend realizes it, they're both kind of yapping at each other, and that's why he gives him a yellow. But with good reason, the dude got – it's a headbutt. Like at the end of the day, it's a headbutt. No matter yeah. how hard it was, the dude initiated physical contact. Like I can go for a punch, and if I nick you in the head a little bit, that's still a red card. Like end of story. This mm-hmm. is – this – I mentioned that in the group text with you guys. was the third event this weekend – where VAR would have fixed the call. Like there yeah. was a, a Southampton goal that was unallowed, and then the Mitrovic goal against Liverpool, which mm-hmm. seven seconds later led to a Liverpool goal. So changed the whole face of the match. Right. So you had three events in one weekend in the EPL where you could have fixed that with VAR. And God knows these referees in the Premier League need the VAR assistance because they miss some crazy, like simple calls sometimes. So at this point, after seeing it at the World Cup and seeing its success in other leagues, like this was like the one time that I was like, yeah, bring the VAR here immediately because it's, it's needed. I guess the one thing that bothered me more than anything was the ego that, that these referees have nowadays. I mean, you said it. Kevin Friend wasn't even facing the play when Bernard had butted Rudiger, but surely his linesman had to see that. And he even points at the linesman just to kind of get his take on it. And there is no way in hell the lineman did not see that call. So basically Kevin Friend disregards the lineman and says, you know what? I don't really know what to do in this situation. So I'm just going to give them both a yellow card and then everybody will go about their business and the match will continue. It just completely ruined the flow of the whole entire game. Rudiger had a right to go down. Yes, he did make the most of it. But a headbutt's a fucking headbutt and that's a red card every day of the week. Luckily, we were uh, – we, we did um, – Get a little bit of luck from Kevin French shit refereeing. I mean, Jorginho should have been sent off. Oh, yeah. He spared us there, too. That was two two footed lunge, stud showing. Cleans up. Yep. That was just, that was dirty. That reminded me of the time that, uh, and I hate to compare him to Aguero because Aguero to me is super dirty, but the time that Aguero lunged at David Luis, like, it was so similar. Mm -hmm. Jorginho, like, tried fouling him three more, three times prior to that. Like, that was just bad. It, It was, 
we got lucky that he didn't get a red. So maybe karma balancing this out. But yeah, he the, the cards he was giving out were the, the all the calls just seemed like a flip of a coin. Whatever happens, happens. Like they, there was no consistency. But mm-hmm. nine times out of ten, any other referee gives a red card right there. So I mean, we were lucky that he was a shit referee in that situation. But again, our luck didn't last very long because Murata should have had a fucking penalty kick. Yerimina wasn't even looking at, at at the ball, and that's sure. and, and that's what drives me nuts is that, you know, the, the rule of uh, they have to tell these referees they have to tell these referees if a player is not even looking at the ball and initiates contact with someone else that's a foul. Yeah, he's not making a play on the ball. Simple as that. Yeah, I mean it, it's just it's ridiculous to me, and it actually. Uh, it, it reminded me of the same foul he committed. I forget who he committed it on, but it was against England in the World Cup that won him a PK in the knockout stages. And uh, and, and he did something very similar, not looking at the ball, holding on to the other player's jersey, and basically wrestling them to the ground. Yes, Murata did go to the ground a little bit easy for me, but again, contact is contact. And was his progress impeded? 100% it was. Murata was not able to move freely because he was getting literally held down by Yerimina. And then he falls on top of him. It's just, yeah. <laughs> it's just absolutely ridiculous to me how the Premier League has not addressed these situations. And that's – I mean we're just talking about the shit foul calls. What about five minutes at the end of the second half? There should have been at least seven minutes alone. You look at Richarlison basically pulling a fucking Marcus Rashford on one end of the pitch. And then you got and then you got the whole uh, uh, time wasting with Jordan Pickford, which, by the way, Jordan Pickford must have been warned at least four or five times before he actually got carded. And then once he got carded, he it's it's like all of a sudden for referees, it's like, here, I'm going to give you a card for time wasting. And then you get four more warnings before you pick up your second yellow. Yeah, that makes I, no sense to me. The the warning is supposed to be the yellow. Do it again, you get the red. That's how it should be. But going yeah. back to the the Yeri Mina thing, like what really bugged me in like in the weird like just so much was that after the match he won man of the match for fouling a dude in the box that was missed. Like you gave essentially the he pulled a fast one yet he wins man of the match. Like that's straight bullshit. Like. I understand that the call we like. Let's say Giroud was on the field and that happened. Giroud gets the call simply because Morata has a reputation of falling to the ground when he's touched. It's yeah. the complete opposite of of the Diego Costa effect, where Diego Costa could like touch a player and if they went down, he would get a foul called against him. Yeah. Yeah. So it sucks that because of Morata's history, we didn't get that penalty. But yeah, it was that. This referee was just all over the place. That that should have been a penalty. Bernard should have gotten a red. Uh, Jorginho should have had a red. There was other calls, too, where I was just confused. Like you said, the Pickford stuff, it was all over. the. There was no textbook that he was following. He was just winging it the whole time. It, it was. It's just so ridiculous to me that there's no consistency between referees like i understand that certain referees notice some things more than the others right you got the referees that'll let a little bit that that'll let that you know slide tug of the shirt go or some referees that'll let uh you know some that are more patient with time wasting and things like that but to add five minutes at the end of that first half and right away Maurizio sorry started mouthing off to uh to the fourth official on the sideline I think it was Andre Mariner if i'm not mistaking and then you see Maurizio sorry just start lighting him up because Richarlison and Jordan Pickford alone should have added five minutes to the match. What about all three substitutions? That's another minute and a half or two minutes. Easy. It was just so ridiculous to me. And how how this has been going on for such a long time is just absolutely baffling. I'm so glad VAR is coming in next year because now we're not going to have those players writhing around on the floor. We're not going to have Bernard headbutting people when no one's looking. Referees are going to be able to take two or three looks out of play and tell if it's a yellow or a red, and they're going to also have the option to tell if it's a penalty or not. It's it's going to help so much. It's and it's definitely going to help the better teams, uh, like the top six, who tend to have a lot more possession and who tend to get kicked out of matches. Just imagine how many people are going to be able to get away with kicking Eden Hazard out of a match when they have VAR 
filming every yeah. single move they uh, or every single tackle they make. So that's the end of my rant. I mean, that just it just fucking pissed me off so much. And besides the fact that I was hungover while watching the match, I had a writhing <laughs> headache, and I was just like not in the mood for any bullshit at the moment. And what did I get? Total bullshit. Um, yes. Surprise! You even woke up for the match. Hey, I was at a wedding in Paducah, Kentucky. So I think <laughs> hey, I was, I think I was no, the only like Palestinian Arab in Paducah, <laughs> Kentucky. Like, yeah, it, I feel yeah. My girlfriend's from Kentucky, and when I went to visit for Thanksgiving, I feel I felt like I was the first Hispanic person they ever saw. So <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's just so funny. It's like they see someone with a little bit of a darker complexion and go, "Whoa, who are you?" <laughs> um, anyways. Uh, if you are listening from Paducah, Kentucky, reach out to me because that's pretty fucking awesome. And I was just there. so. Um, but anyways, I want to move on. I want to talk about the back line. So, I mean, I guess this was the one positive about this match and about our performance as a whole. I mean, they were they were really solid throughout. Uh, combined eight aerials won, eight combined tackles, uh, 90% pass completion rate between them four. Um, is our back line becoming more solid as the season progresses? Or are teams just uh, backing off of us and and allowing us to attack them and just trying to hit us on the counter? Um, I think it might be a mix of everything. I thought we were very solid against Liverpool, who's a very attacking side. Mm-hmm. Um, because we keep the ball so much, like we're averaging like 68% possession, something like that. Like obviously, our defenders are touching the ball more rather than defending, but. Rudiger pocketed Richarlison today. Like I felt zero threat from him. Mm-hmm. Everton's like only chance was like a 20 yard plus shot from Sigurdsson that went straight to Keppa. Uh, I think we're, they're doing well. The positioning's getting better on the defensive side. I think the only real ass like fat face of the game they need to improve on is the offensive side where uh, maybe Aspie and, and needs to be a little bit better on, on the positioning going forward, or maybe, if Jorginho gets kind of marked out, Rudiger and, and David Luis need to kind of look for those longer balls, which they are very good at. So mm-hmm. just kind of having a little bit more confidence on, on the moving the ball forward side, because if we get caught playing these side to sides, we'll have more games like the one we had on Sunday. See, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned Rudiger and David Luis playing those clipped balls over the top. Like, I, of course, that's that's one option. But one thing that we've normally seen from david louise all season um is when Jorginho does get sort of marked out of a match david louise is the one that kind of takes maybe five or that positions himself maybe five or six yards um closer to the midfield so he could become another outlet right and we didn't really see that in this game as much which i thought was interesting but again it's understandable because a guy like richarlison who just has so much pace um, you need that cover, and it looked like Rudiger was the one that was man marking him, and David Luiz mm-hmm. was kind of playing that free safety role where he would just kind of jump the passing lane or provide that cover if needed. Um, a, a few weeks ago, Maurizio Sarri uh, talked about Marcus Alonso um, and and his need to kind of improve the defensive. He calls it the defensive phase, right? We we keep hearing this term, the defensive phase. I mean, is he getting more acclimated to the system because? Let me tell you what, he could have had a hat trick in this game. I, mean, I, think, I think it was pretty obvious. Um, but in terms of, of the defensive side, are we seeing a more uh, defensively astute Marcus Alonso? Uh, I think so. But before I get into that, I wanted to say one more thing about Luis. Um, I think yeah, no. because of the mid block and, and just having so many bodies compressed to like 20 yards of the middle of the field, he didn't have the room to have that surging run. Mm-hmm. So again, credit to Everton for even blocking the secondary option, which was Luis to go forward. But uh, in terms of Alonso, I thought he was one of our best players. I think Rudiger might have been my my personal man of the match, but Alonso was the only one that was making things happen. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, on the offensive side, he had three chances, which on another day either go in off the post or the keeper can't react quickly enough to score them. So, like he he's found a good balance of games where he needs to be the guy to make those kind of surging runs. Like mm-hmm. when we need him to be there, he usually is. And then when he needs to play the secondary role and kind of just stay more quiet, he has. So, no, Marcos Alonso is not the fastest guy who's gonna be at your opponent's corner box and then somehow be the first man on defense. But he seems to be standing in a little bit better position. 
and kind of hiding the fact that he may not be the quickest or best, even best positionally placed player when we're caught on the counter. So he is hiding his weaknesses, which are make, which essentially means he is doing better in a defensive uh, standing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting how Mauricio Sarri is approaching the Marcus Alonso situation because, I mean, we all know how he started off the season. He was probably uh, behind Hazard, our best attacker, right? And we talked about how strong that left side is and how great Marcus Alonso is at those uh, at the at those inward diagonals and or inverted diagonals and how great he is at finishing and whatnot. But then Mauricio Sarri immediately talks about it right away. He's like, whoa, 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 yeah, he's playing well on the offensive end. He's doing what he needs to do. But defensively, we're struggling. Our whole left side is wide open. And that's why we conceded a lot of chances to start the season. But Maurizio Sarri addressed this and said, you know what? And, and this is this is pretty true. The, the last month or so, we haven't really seen a lot of Marcus Alonso in terms of the attack. We have saw him be a lot more pragmatic. And I think Maurizio Sarri wants him to understand the fundamentals defensively before he can kind of take the leash off and say, go and attack as you please. And I think this match was the first match really where in the last month or so where we really saw Marcus Alonso just kind of going for it, um, but at the right times. You know, he was making those intelligent runs. Usually what we see is Marcus Alonso just pushing up on that left-hand side and just staying there, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. we're always seeing him hugging the touchline. But now we're starting to see him push up. He gets the ball out quickly from under his feet, plays a cross in or makes a run. Second we lose possession, he's on his horse and he's running back. And sometimes he's even staying back completely. Um, And and, and now we have that balance in the back line that we needed. And we talked about it um, when the season started, how – you know, we were worried about how much Marcus Alonso was pushing up because that would leave da- that would leave David Luiz exposed because Luiz is playing on the left hand side as well. Um, but they seem to be pretty fucking solid right now, and it's it, it, <laughs> and, and it's refreshing. And you know, we've talked about a little bit about Marcus Alonso, but you know, I feel like the fact that we're not talking about Dave is actually a good thing because this is how that guy made his name playing for Chelsea too, right? Um, he's always been that quiet seven out of ten every single week and now Dave finally seems like he's starting to get the hang of that role a little bit you talked about his need to go forward a little bit more um yeah I mean I guess that's true but our strength is on the left hand side we have to remember that and Dave should have had an assist in this game if Alvaro Morata wasn't being a fucking sleepyhead um and sitting off sides <laughs> in the fucking six yard box so I mean I guess we should just move on to Alvaro Morata um uh, yes, I mean, if, if you're listening right now, go grab your drink, uh, find a place to sit. This is going to be a doozy. So we got one shot on target, a whopping one shot on target. Zero <laughs> dribbles completed. Numbers. One aerial one out of three and five offside calls. I'm going to say it again. You heard me correctly. Five, like the amount of fingers on your hand. Five offside and calls. Four of those had to have been in the last five ten minutes when we were trying to get the, get the late goal too it's so infuriating it's absolutely ridiculous so i mean what the hell happened just bitched moaned and didn't get his way and god let that be the reason he was playing like he spoke i feel like he spoke to the referee more than any other player on the pitch and when that happens you're not focused on the game at that point you're letting every any other thing that happens be the reason for something. So once you see a player start bugging the ref multiple times in a game, that that, that player is already out of it. And, mm-hmm. and I get so frustrated when I see players do that. Like, you you can't just focus on the game. Like, oh, you're not going to get a call. Like, later in the, in the match, there was a time where he was on the left flank, like, hit back to goal, trying to shield the ball from Yerimina. And, like, yeah, they were bumping, bumping. And then, like, no bump, and he just falls to the ground and turns around, like, waiting for a call. Like, dude, no, no. Like, play the freaking game. Play till the whistle. If you don't get the call, you get up and you keep going. Like, we just talked about how his best performance, he was covered in mud. He was making the runs. He was getting pushed. Like, he rolled his sleeves up. How the hell do you go from that to just this? And and for God's sake, five offsides? Five? That is beyond lazy that is stupid and selfish as a teammate to like see another player be offside that much when you're that desperate to make something happen like i i don't even want to know what people were thinking uh about 
that little 10 minute offside fiesta he had like that was god awful awful you know you basically said everything on my mind but this is alvaro morata unfortunately right and we talked about it last week we said his two performances his his two goals last week was great you know he looked good he rolled his sleeves up he got down and dirty he did the dirty work right and that's how he built his game he did the defensive side he worked his ass off he closed down defenders he won 50 50s he was being physical staying on his feet none of that today absolutely none of that and this is alvaro Morata. Chelsea fans need to come to terms, and most of all, the Chelsea board, that this is Alvaro Morata. Now, look, I'm not shitting on him. I don't hate him. I don't wish, uh, I, I don't wish that he'd fall off the face of the earth. Uh, off the face of the earth. Look, the guy still wears a Chelsea shirt. He still has a badge on his chest. I'm always going to support him in that sense. But if you're asking me if he's good enough for Chelsea, that's a completely different question. And my answer is fuck no. He is not good enough for Chelsea. He can't score enough goals. He can't stay on his feet. He can't maintain his focus. And most of all, and this is something I noticed, when he first came to the club and started banging in those goals, he was still doing his rolling around on the floor acting bullshit, right? I mean, that's always been a part of his game that we've seen since day one. But the difference is back then he would fall on the floor, bitch and moan for a little bit, and then you'd see his teammates come to his support. And his teammates would approach the referee and start talking. We had guys like Cesc Fabregas, like Pedro, some of his Spanish – uh, some of his Spanish teammates would come up to the referee and they would complain and they'd get on their case because they're supporting their teammate. What do you see now with Alvaro Morata? He gets on the floor. He rolls around. He bitches and moans. Do you see any of his teammates running over there to help him up? Do you see any of his teammates approaching the referee and 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 help and, and supporting him in his case? Do you see anybody even holding him back from yelling at the referee? You don't see anything. Zero yeah. cohesion between him and his teammates. And that kind of brings me to this whole William debate about why the fuck did he not square the ball? I mean, was it a matter of <laughs> yeah. he just did he not see it or I... did he not trust Alvaro Morata? Because it's just it, it fucking blows my mind. I mean, it's just so crazy to me how we haven't gotten this man a sports psychologist. How we we just he hasn't improved his game at all. I mean, you watch yourself on TV. If you go home and you're a professional fucking footballer, you record the match, you watch yourself, you watch the game footage, you study your movements and improve on what you can improve on. But he does not do any of that, and it just drives me crazy. All he does is post pictures of his, uh, him blow-drying his wife's hair or him with a night on a town with the love of his life or him in the car with the love of his life or him in the kitchen with the love of, with the love of his life. I mean focus on the fucking football. This is what you get paid to do. The fact that no one has pulled him aside by the shirt collar and slapped him upside the head and say, cut that shit out because it's clearly not working is just absolutely beyond me. And you know what? I I said it a couple weeks ago on Twitter that I was done with him. I've been done with him. I can't wait till we find another striker. If we do wind up selling him, good riddance, best of luck. I do not hate you as a person, but in terms of you being a Chelsea striker, you are just not fit for purpose. That's the end of my rant. I'm yeah. I'm just so over it. One thing to wrap the Morata part of the talk like and get on with it is for one, the thing that infuriates me is that he's got every tool to mm-hmm. be a good forward and it's just all in his head. And Sari's even mentioned that he's fragile, like we talked about this last week. It's just you know, for be like for example, like me playing my whole life, like I wish I had that talent. You know what I mean? Like I'm one of those people that like, okay, I'm not going to be the fastest. I'm not going to do this. So I'm going to work on the things that I can improve to hide those things. Like when you're so gifted, like the dude has great ups. He's fast. He's got a good frame on him. Like he's got everything you think you need to be a good forward. It's just not there in his head. That's what frustrates me. And again, I'm not, the other part is I was going to say, I was going to say is, Today's result was not all in Alvaro Morata, so I don't want people to be like, "Oh, you're scapegoating him." Because believe me, I think most of the team, most of the team, I thought had an awful game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think it's on Morata. I think 
we play this game three more times, we win one zero the other three times. So I don't I don't blame him solely by any means, but it it sucks when you have such a blatantly bad performance amongst like I said, amongst everyone else having such a bad one, the fact that we can still hone in on this is is bad. So I, I like we were just having a debate like, oh, maybe you'll start Morata more than Giroud. Like now I'm thinking, OK, back to square one, play Giroud. <laughs> yes, he's not going to be the quickest guy, but at least he'll do the work for the others around him. So January can't come soon enough. And hopefully there is a solution in January. But if not, like the, the conversation is going to keep going until something works, because that the, the strikers not scoring is, is a big glaring issue at Chelsea and it could be the reason we get stuck in third place the rest of the season I mean call me crazy but I think there's a lot more goals in the side when we have Giroud on the pitch just for one reason and one reason only Hazard is much better when he's playing with a guy like Olivier Giroud aka the human wall pass right there's a couple times in this game where you know how Hazard likes to tuck in right behind a striker. He likes to get the ball to feet facing away from goal and just play like that little back heel flip right around a defender. He did that flick a couple times, and Murata was just nowhere to be seen. Like he he had no no idea that that was even an option. No, he he, he had no awareness to kind of step into that position and be like, you know what, Hazard could could play me a flick in this position and then he could be off. I, it could just be a simple one-two around the back, uh, around that center back and we're in. But he doesn't read those little pockets in between the lines. I mean, he only seems he only seems to thrive in that 18-yard box and I think that's where Giroud comes in. Giroud knows how to operate outside of the 18. He knows how to operate at, at, at at the base of midfield in a sense, because he could hold up the ball and allow his team to press forward. And ugh, it just drove me nuts. I, I, just absolutely crazy. But I want to move on. I want to talk about Willian. I want to talk about Hazard for a little bit. We are running a little bit short on time. So, I mean, uh, we won't get to spend as much time as we wanted on these guys, but Willian, I mean, clearly this was uh, one of his worst performances of the season. I mean, we did talk about that final ball with Murata. Um, yeah. You know, I, I looked up his heat map, and most of his touches in the game were in the wide positions at about half field. Uh, obviously, in the opposition side, but not in the offensive third. And for me, that's a concern because you take out Morata and you take out Hazard. Willian should be our number three option. It's it, it's that simple. There's really no other way around it. So, um, that ball to Morata was it a matter of not playing it to him because he didn't trust him or was he being selfish or did he just do the typical Willian thing and not see it? Cause that's the sense I'm getting. Yeah. I mean, luckily Twitter exists and people were quickly to point out that this same situation has happened three or four more times where Willian is West Ham. West Ham is the, the other one that ended nil nil. That was an, a winnable game. Mm-hmm. And that shot he took then was way worse than this one. But there was a chance against Liverpool where he had Giroud to his left, didn't slot it to Giroud, tried to, tried to shoot with two men on him. There was obviously this one, and then there was one in Newcastle where Hazard, there's a picture still of Hazard with his arm pointing forward, splitting two defenders, and William didn't pass him the ball there either. So I I don't know if it's just William like, oh, I'm, out, I'm in the box, like I just need to shoot, but you give that positioning in that ball to a Manchester City player and you better believe that Mares, Silva, Sané, oh yeah they're crossing they're putting that across to to Aguero or one of their other teammates like that's becoming a goal like that is the we, we mentioned this is like the typical FIFA goal that you hate to like give up where you mm-hmm. square it across the box and the guy taps it right in like at this point I think it's it's Willian's lack of faith like for one, it's a selfishness. We've always talked about how William has never scored that many goals, and I think that that might be playing a little bit of a game in his head. Like, oh, this is it. I'm gonna score my goal. Like, it's gonna go in. And the other part is thanks to Doomy Drexel on Twitter, the guy showed the little map that shows like the arrows of how often you're passing amongst your players and their general positioning on the field, and it actually showed that William attempted only five passes to Murata all game. That is 
insane for a team that's passing the ball. What did you say? 800 times a game? I think it's uh, on average is 680 sorry, passes. 680 passes. And you're telling me that Short five of passes. your – yeah. Five of your, like, maybe what, William, maybe averages like 30, 40 passes. Only five of those go to your striker, who is the nearest player to you all game. That is not that that is not down to the system at that point. That is just him not playing the ball to him. And That is almost 750 passes a match for Chelsea on average. Yeah, like that's – at that point, it's an issue of, of William not – wanting to give the ball to Morata. Like, I get it. Morata's not scoring and he's going down. But, like, you, at that point, I was telling you guys that the issue there is that defenses can see this on film and be like, oh, we'll just double up on Willian because at the end of the day, he's not going to pass it to Morata. So leave Morata open and we double Willian, get the ball back, and problem solved. Like, that that's is- my issue with it. Like, that is my issue is that teams can prepare for that if they know that Willian isn't going to give Morata the ball ever. I think we're just starting to see the beginning of the end of Willian um, at Chelsea. And it's unfortunate because, I mean, he has done so much for the club. I have a Willian jersey. I love him. I've always loved him. But um, he he holds on to the ball a little bit too long for my liking, and especially in this system. He, play, he thrives in a team that's pragmatic, and we've seen that before. I mean, look at all his prior managers. He did well under uh, Jose Mourinho. Uh, playing on the right uh, again very pragmatic team Antonio Conte did freeze him out for a little bit but when he played he did pretty well he did himself some justice um, but now we're starting to see him play in a more attacking system that needs to be fluid and quick and a lot of the passes are these quick short passes just boom 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 go and Willian struggles at that he holds onto the ball way too long and we're seeing that game after game after game and I think eventually it's going to come down to sorry, just maybe losing faith, a little bit of faith in him, and crazy, and, and, and pursuing crazy, an, yeah. another right wing. The the crazy thing in all this is that William keeps starting, and again, William is a good player. Like anytime we play William on the left wing when he's in place of Hazard, like it makes sense. He's the guy that's going to get the ball to his feet and try to make something happen. Or when even when he's coming on late for Pedro or something, mm-hmm. at that point, I feel like. Hazard lets him have the responsibility of having the ball to his feet because Hazard's played the 60 minutes. So, okay, let's kind of reverse roles. I'll do the running off the ball. William can do the hard work, and then I'll be wide open. So whenever they're not trying to do the exact same thing, things work out fine. It's just, like you said, it's this whole reason to just, I need to have the ball on my feet. Like there was times in the game where the ball would get worked to the left side and Next thing you know, William is like central, like parallel to Morata, and there's nobody in the right wing. The yeah. moment that Pedro came on, there was those. It was the ability to play sorry ball again, where we focus on the left and then we make one pass back, and then boom, you see the long switch to Pedro, who is now all by himself because he stayed on the right, just being patient and trusting the system. So, again, I think it's just that that William style, like this is how I play is trumping what the team needs to be doing. And at one point or another, like like you said, I think we just don't have the options right now. But at one point we will, and that's when William will get phased out. Like like I said, left wing as a backup to Hazard, great. But starting him side to side by Hazard, like I, I just that, – that's where the lack of balance is, and, and we see it up front. I mean I want to move on for a second, but it does tie in with William. So I remember mentioning in the group chat – we mentioned this group chat a lot. I mean, maybe we should maybe we should finally drop some screenshots because it's pretty <laughs> it's pretty lit. But, um, anyways, you know, we we talk about Mateo Kovacic and the whole Ross Barkley debate, and I mentioned in the group chat how I think Kovacic is actually more productive um, offensively and offers more offensively when Pedro's in the game because Pedro does stretch defenses with those runs and he does open up spaces in the midfield for Kovacic to pick out those short passes and link up play to Hazard, but he also allows Kovacic to pick up his head and maybe find that long ball to Pedro to relieve pressure. And when we have Willian in the game, he doesn't really make those runs, right? Willian likes to come short. He likes the ball to feet, whereas Pedro does like the ball with a little bit of space in front of him. You know, uh, overall on the game, I, I didn't think Kovacic had a bl- – I, I didn't think he had a blinder like everyone else did. I thought he played okay. I thought he was good. He did drop a little bit deeper to get on the ball because of Jorginho. 
But for me, he just lacks that ability to run beyond the front three. And I tweeted during the game that, you know, the fact that Kovacic has no goals in him doesn't really help us much against a team that sets up this low defensive block um, like Everton did, where they just packed things in. They made it really congested in the midfield and we weren't able to operate where you got guys like Ross Barkley that will um, th- that'll break through that midfield block by making making those runs in and beyond the strikers that could kind of disorient teams and pull them out of shape just for that split second so we could punish them. And we didn't really see that. So is do will we get the best out of Kovacic with Pedro in? Because that's the sense I'm getting is when Pedro's in the game, I mean, we really do see Kovacic start to flourish a little bit more because the ball's moving faster and he just seems to be a little bit more in his element. Yeah, I think it it will. It's one of those things where it's give and take, right? So whenever Kovacic is in, that left-hand side is like in sync in terms of their short passes, their moves off the ball and all that. But then you give up, like you said, that direct goal threat when the ball's in the box. Any goal threat in that right. case because Will, uh, Kovacic cannot shoot the fucking ball. It's, <laughs> it, it's insane to me how this guy has perfect technique with everything else. But when it comes to hitting just a simple 20-yard shot right outside the box, he puts it seven or eight feet over the bar. It's just kind of frustrating. But I love Kovacic. But. Yeah, so it's one of those things where, like, do you do you need to break a defense down like, like, can you pass through the defense by, like, doing all the little short passes and dribbling? Slash, do you need to be more defensively aware? Or are you g- being given space between midfield and the final third that you can exploit with, like, a little bit more directness? So that's where it all plays down. I think another thing is, with when, again, when Pedro is on, he is operating to the benefit of the system. Like, there was times where, like, William was right there, right next to Kovacic. And I'm thinking, dude, you're like, that's the most annoying thing when you're positionally right. And one of your teammates is making the exact same run you just did. Yeah. Like I can only imagine that's what Kovacic is thinking. My like, little nine-year-olds do that all the time. <laughs> one of them will be running with the ball and the other one will be running next to them about three feet away, asking for a ball to feet. And it's just, it's the same thing. It's the same concept. Yeah. So then at that point you have, you lose the ball because there's too many Chelsea players and you can't really move it. So yeah. That's that's why I also think he benefits with Pedro because Pedro's thinking, okay, I'm going to do this work on my side to maybe open up space for him to dribble into or open up space to where the switch can come to me. Like, again, Pedro's thinking a step further than when the ball goes to him. And that's where I think William is lacking. And again, you just said it. Kovacic also improves when Pedro's there. I'm pretty sure Morata scores more when Pedro's there. Mm-hmm. Hazard gets to release a little, well, a couple more balls when Pedro is there. We get to move out of the back and switch it to the other side when Pedro is there. So like, I'm, Pedro's I'm giving... been playing in a system like this his whole life. The fact that he doesn't start every big match is it's kind of crazy, isn't it? Yeah, like you see all these things on online. Like, what does William have over Sari in the Chelsea board where they have to start him every game? Like, again, when William comes off the bench. Everything seems to be fine. Like, he does well when he's coming off. When he plays on the left wing, when Hazard's not there, it's good. But the go-to really needs to be left wing Hazard, right wing Pedro, striker, up for debate. But that really needs to be our starting front three against bigger sides. Or any side. So we we have to move on. We are running really, really low on time. So I'm going to get straight to the quick thoughts portion um andres how about we just uh kind of flip-flop these uh these bullet points here so do you want to take the first one because it's a it's quite the question um Um, yeah Uh, go ahead i'll ask you actually i think that sounds better for our lovely (laughs) listeners so at nick lenartson i don't i don't even know if i'm pronouncing that right he told me how to pronounce his name a few weeks ago and i looked for the tweet because i forgot and i didn't so i'm sorry Shout out to Sweden. Nick Lenartsen's awesome. Uh, he wants us to discuss Kovacic's future after the loan spell at Chelsea. So if you could give a, a, a quick, like, maybe 10, 15-second roundup on what you think. If the price is right and Real's willing to negotiate, you extend the guy. Right now, he is great at what we need. And, again, Barkley and Lots of Cheek aren't quite ready to take on the actual defensive responsibilities. So... And he can play all three roles in midfield. The guy can is a stopgap for any of our issues. Sign him. 
new center back in Rugani? Uh, I think we're past that. Uh, I think that that that's kind of like the Koulibaly rumors. I think that rumor is just being overused now for headlines. Now, uh, is a midfield with Ruben Loftus-Cheek and Ross Barkley in Chelsea's future? Yes, Kasari seems to like both of them, and he is coaching them up. So Barkley said that he hasn't been coached this way in five years. So I think that we will continue to see improvement on both players. Both can stay healthy. They have a, a, a future here. Now, this is an interesting one. So striker options. He mentioned that all the big clubs in the Premier League have options on the bench. How do you feel about that? When Aguero's not playing, they've got Gabriel Jesus. When Firmino's not playing, they can rotate a little bit up front and Shakiri would come in or Sturridge. Like United has essentially dropped Lukaku and are doing just fine with Alexis and Rashford. It's it's true. Cool. And then uh, one one quick thing. I want a quick shout out to at Dean Mears. So, I mean, this guy's a writer. Uh, I, I read his material all the time. He's fucking awesome. But he actually shouted us out earlier this week as one of the few U.S.-based podcasts that he actually enjoys listening to. So shout out to Dean Mears. Uh, I love your work. And, and it's actually kind of crazy to me that uh, he actually gives our podcast uh, the time of day. So we hope you keep listening and, and we hope to interact with you again in the future. So, um, Andres, you want to move on to this next bullet point? Yeah. So next question is regarding the rumors uh, around Ampadu, both Aston Villa and Derby are reportedly looking to bring him in in January. What do you think? I like it. I think it's a good move, but it all hinges on what happens with Gary Cahill in January for me. If Cahill walks, we have to keep Ampadu because he just seems to be that, you know, ideal fit to step in and be our fourth choice center back. If Cahill, uh, if Cahill winds up staying, Ampadu has to leave. He has to get that playing time. I would rather have him play at Aston Villa so they could do something similar to what Mason Mount is doing with uh, Frank Lampard and John Terry could sort of mold Ampadu into this little defensive leader. Uh, hashtag minutes for the main, right? Just to steal your <laughs> hashtag there. Hell yeah, you got to get the kid minutes. I mean, if he keeps getting called up for Wales, like somebody's going to get in his ear to leave. Yeah. I think you have to budge a little bit, get in the minutes for the next six months and and uh, regroup in, in the summer. So, I mean, Eden Hazard said it's something interesting this week. He said, quote, believe me, I am tired, but I think I'm in good condition to play. Last year, I got an injury with my ankle for three months. So that's why I'm fresh now. Is that the most contradictory statement you've ever heard? <laughs> a little bit um i think what he was trying to say is that because last year he was dealing with a nat like a knock that he kept trying to play through it didn't look like he was fresh and maybe that's why now when he's fully healthy he's fresh and then the part where he says he's tired i mean he played a world cup so he didn't have a summer vacation essentially so i yeah i there's a lot here to, to kind of dissect but Coming from somebody whose English is his second language, I can kind of see what he was trying to go for. Mm -hmm. um, I think he was just trying to compare playing through an injury versus playing healthy. And then maybe he was answering a previous question when he said that he was tired. Yeah. Maybe he was talking about the fact that they traveled and he didn't get enough sleep. I, I don't know about that part, but I think he was trying to focus in on the fact that he's healthy now. Cool. Um, we have uh, at Heisel Kyle asked, by the way, frequent tweeter, so shout out to him. He tweets at us all the time. Um, do you think we need a striker or a right winger more because of William and Pedro's obvious decline? So, I mean, I, I kind of want to take this one from you, Andres. Because, Go for it. Uh, I, yeah, Pedro, I, I understand what he's saying with Pedro's decline, obviously because of his age. And you and I discussed it in a group chat as well. You know, he is getting a little bit older, but he's still very, very effective. Now, Maurizio Sarri needs a striker. Or he needs a solution to striker. And uh, I, I do think that a right winger would be more important at this point in time just because we do need that sort of air to Eden Hazard. Now, with the striker situation, I think we could remedy that, remedy that with uh, the players we have in the squad. Why not try Eden Hazard out as a false nine? I think it'll work. You could turn him in. If you could turn Dries Mertens into a world class false number nine, imagine what you could do with Eden Hazard. Yeah, I mean. I would love to keep Hazard on the left, but yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with anything you just said. Now, last one. Uh, Andres, you could take this one. So Jordan Pickford had himself quite the game on Sunday. 
it seems like every goalkeeper pulls a worldly on Chelsea, but this one in particular was a special performance. So is is he the real deal since making his move to Everton? Does England have a a, a potentially world class keeper on their hands? I think if you have a decent front like back four in front of him, I think that really helps him out. Um, earlier in the season, or I think it was earlier this season, he struggled a little bit for Everton. That might have been fatigue from the World Cup, but yeah, he looked fantastic. I think he's one of those keepers that beats the you have to be tall to play the position kind of mentality. So I think he's got the potential. I, I think as long as he can kind of keep a cool head and, and not let what's around him get to him, I, I think he could be a, a great keeper. And that and that point you just mentioned further proves how big of a prick Thibaut Courtois is. Because didn't he bash him for being a short goalkeeper during the World Cup? And then he had an absolute worldly performance. And then Courtois turned around and said, oh, you know, he, he's a great keeper, actually. I, I didn't really mean what I said. Fuck off, Thibaut. Um, so <laughs> let's uh, let's move on to the match preview. We got about five minutes left. Um, so Chelsea versus Spurs after the horrible, horrible, horrible curse of an international break um it's at Wembley so we usually play well there but Spurs are fourth in the table they're on 27 points that's just one point behind us they've won four of their last five Premier League matches and they won their last the last four matches that they've won in the league they've only won by one goal so Andres uh what are some things to look out for Harry Kane, obviously, um, keeping Kane from getting his eyes to look up to get ready any sort of shot, I think is a big uh, thing we need to stop. He can shoot from everywhere, every angle, curl it, ping it. He can. He's a striker, like a, the kind of one we sort of need. Um, <laughs> I think their front three is the biggest threat. Uh, I saw we were looking up the stat, and it's uh, Kane. Lucas Mora and Lamella are the only three players in Tottenham's team with more than two goals. So just kind of managing that top, like that front three, and obviously Christian Eriksen being the kind of um, puppet master in terms of the passing and and how that team functions. He's Mm -hmm. kind of their version of Jorginho, I guess. A little bit more advanced on the field, likes to sit in between the midfield and defense. So just making sure that our midfield three has an eye on him and are quick to close in on him. I, I think those two things will get us will get us a victory. I I, I have set pieces. I actually have two. So I, I have set pieces as one. Obviously, Trippier and uh, Erickson are two of the better set piece takers in the Premier League. Um, if they weren't Spurs players, I would say that they're probably two of the best, but they're Spurs players. So they're just two of the better ones, right? Um eight goals out of their 19 total in the league came off set pieces. Two of those are PKs. So if we can keep, if if we can not foul them in the final third, I think that'll help us out a lot because uh, although we do have guys like Rudiger and David Luiz who are good in the air defending set pieces, one thing Mauricio Pochettino always brings to the table with any side he sets up is size. Uh, He always has at least four, five, six foot, plus players on the field and you know guys like Harry Kane, Davidson Sanchez, Vertonghen, uh, Alderweireld whenever he's healthy, Dele Alli, Eric Dyer, those guys could get on the end of uh, those clipped crosses that Trippier and Eriksen like to play into the box but my second thing is uh, Dele Alli, he always seems to hurt us and he is probably probably actually my least favorite player in the league um, just because you know everything about him irks me to pieces but um he seems to play well against Chelsea so if we could kind of nullify him if he does start that would be great um it's kind of weird to say but in this game I mean you mentioned Lucas Moore and Lamella those are their two informed players at the moment and maybe seeing Dele Alli wouldn't be necessarily a bad thing yeah because um, of the run of form he's in maybe maybe the other thing is like like you said he seems to score against us and all I can think about when I think of playing Spurs when we've lost have been their headed goals. Like there yeah. was the, the two Alley loss where he Dele Alley beat Aspie in the back post, but then he also beat Moses in the back post. Like it's just like you said, those crosses. There's something about Pochettino setting up those crosses where where he's good at doing that. So yeah, yeah it, it might just be down to yeah, don't give up corners and fouls. Like 
keep the ball away from our goal line at all costs and just be careful where you're fouling Tottenham. So uh, g- give me your predictions. I mean, give me the match prediction and give me that bold prediction. Marcus Alonso will score again on Tottenham. I don't know if that's bold or if that's just now consistency on his end, but Alonso will score. Whether that's a free kick or a run of play goal, he'll score. What about uh, what about the scoreline? What do you think? Oh, um, we're playing in Wembley, so it's a home game for us. Uh, I say two zero Chelsea. Ooh, I'm gonna go two one Chelsea. I think Spurs win a shoddy penalty for whatever reason. Um, and I think uh, I think Pedro's gonna get the start and Pedro's gonna get a goal. And I think this is actually gonna be the beginning of the end of Willian at Chelsea, like I alluded to earlier. I think Pedro's just gonna get in his really decent run of form and it's gonna be impossible for Willian to see the first team again unless, you know, injuries or uh, squad rotation. So I mean that brings us to the end of the show. Andres, very well done, buddy. Uh, we did it yet again. Um, if you guys like the podcast, make sure you follow us at Romans Empire Pod. Just shoot us emails, RomansEmpirePod at gmail.com. Um, make sure that you guys look us up. We've been putting out a lot of content, about one episode a week. If you liked what you heard this week, maybe give the last episode a, a listen as well. You might like some of the things that we say there. Um, again, we were missing Psalm this week. We apologize for that. So anybody that's a Psalm fan, um, which I highly <laughs> doubt because, you know, Psalm's absolutely terrible. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, he, he, he might be back next week for your luck and for, uh, for, uh, our displeasure. But anyways, um, thanks again, Andres. Two weeks, two weeks. Remember we two have weeks, a, two weeks. Yes. It sucks to say, but it is two weeks. We uh, should have Psalm back after his final exams are done, which I don't blame him, even though football is life. But like you said, everyone just kind of interact with us on Twitter. We like to talk to you guys. We like to hear your thoughts and opinions. And I even got to chat with a Venezuelan guy today on Twitter. He just kind of reached out after I asked for questions. So feel free to just tweet us any questions or comments, and we'll we'll engage with you guys on and off the actual pod. Cool. Andres, good talking to you, buddy. Always a pleasure. All right, guys, we'll see you in two weeks.